Welcome to this edition of the Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Dan Pierce, online editor of mensdivorce.com, and I am joined by Scott Trout, managing partner and CEO of Cordell & Cordell. Welcome. Hey, how are you? And I am also joined by Tammy Rapasso and Will Halaz, two Cordell & Cordell attorneys out of the St. Charles, Missouri office. Welcome. Hi there. Hi. On today's show, we're going to be highlighting some of the advantages that the mediation process entails and how it can benefit your case going into the divorce. You know, mediation is often seen as an alternative option to kind of help bridge the gap between the two divorcing parties. Um, Kind of starting us off, how would you guys describe the mediation process and what goes into it? You know, I always, uh, I tell clients, they, a lot of questions I get at the very beginning of a consult is, you know, do you offer mediation? Do you like mediation? And so I describe, I think mediation, formal or informal, at, at least from my perspective, has to occur in every case. I mean, I'll say to the client, look, we don't have to get a mediator. What I talk about is, let's find out what you want. Let's find out what the possibilities are, kind of what your long-term goals, and let's get the other side in the office and let's do our own informal mediation and, and see what, you know, the opportunities are uh, to resolve the case. But it is, you can look at it a number of different ways. It is, a, it could be a cost-saving me- uh, method. It couldn't be, maybe. It depends on what happens. But I like to define mediation as either an avenue to settlement or an avenue for discovery of information. And, and by that, I mean, I always tell clients, look, I can gather perhaps more information in a mediation session that I, and at a much more cost-effective rate than it is to just do formal discovery right away. Depositions, I, can, I know their side. I know why, uh, what, why they're asking for something, and they may give me all the bad things about a client, and it really is an opportunity. And so I do believe that you should always pursue that avenue, whether it be formal or informal, because there's just, I think, so much return on your investment uh, with mediation. So you shouldn't shy away from it. I think we you have to go in knowing what you're going to get, uh, knowing what the percentage opportunities are to resolve it through either informal or formal mediation. But I do think it's a wise investment of time, uh, resources, effort, and money. But I want your thought on. Well, I would just add, I many people will ask me, well, can't my wife and I just want to use mediation and we don't want attorneys. Mediation is not a replacement for representation. A mediator cannot represent either party. And so it's important for people to understand that it's part of the divorce process, but it's not a replacement for individual representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, just I think that's the maybe again, when we do these podcasts every every month, it is an educational tool. Understand what the process is. It would be like uh, okaying uh, a medical procedure, but not investigating what it's about. And I think in this day and age, everyone wants to Google it and getting as much information as you can about the process, what it's entailed, what the result can be. You know, that's empowering and understanding it because it is so many people that go through it. Whether your uh, local rules require mediation. Uh, whether they suggest or uh, offer it, uh, you just need to understand what the process is, how long it's going to be, what potentials can come out of it. Many think mediation is binding. Sometimes there is binding, uh, what they call mediation or arbitration. Some it's non-binding, but you have to be careful what you do uh, in in those sessions. But just understanding what's going to happen, how long is it going to take, what should you do? Because I, I'm of the opinion that uh, there are some things when you prepare for mediation that you shouldn't share. 
because it, it is for me, I want them to share everything. And some opposing counsel make that mistake. They, they completely show their hand when I'm doing these seminars that I've talked about, uh, over the last number of podcasts, uh, I don't show my hand. I play, it is a game of poker. I try to, you know, show what I need to, and then keep the rest close to the best until I, if I can't settle it, then I've got something left in, you know, in my hand. So. And a big question that I'll get is when is mediation appropriate at, at what juncture in the case? And that really varies from case to case. There are some situations where I am encouraging that we do it right away within the first 30 or 60 days of filing the divorce. And there are other cases where it's, you know, many months down the road, but it has to be at the point where both parties are in a position to be reasonable. And so they have to be in the right frame of mind for that. Right. And to sort of branch off something Scott said earlier with, uh, it can be sort of an informal discovery process, you know, with, um, depositions, people are very on edge, not really willing to share information um, in a mediation type setting. Sometimes I found that people are more willing to give more information and, and they're not, they don't have their guard up the same way they would in a formal discovery process. And so even if mediation is unsuccessful, um, you can still have some success out of it with some additional information you may not have gotten otherwise. I always tell my clients, uh, mediation, they will say, well, how long are we going to be there? So it's going to last five minutes or five hours. It really depends. Uh, both parties may be dug in and it's not productive, but at least you gave it an effort. But I do believe I'm a big fan of starting out of informally. Uh, there are cases where we do need a formal mediator, but, uh, in my experience, whether I, you know, in my past life where I did civil litigation, defense work, uh, we oftentimes use a mediator because there were opportunities to get the mediator to kind of instruct the other side that it was best to settle. But I, what I find in family law, those opportunities are far and few between. It's more or less, I think, doing that informal mediation where you can get the opposing counsel in the room, parties there, and try to hash it out and see what you can settle if you can do a piecemeal uh, as opposed to a global. But I'm a big fan of at least trying it out informally right off the get-go even though we don't have all the discovery and we have to advise you, the client of what, you know, what is possible here. I don't have the information. There may be instances where mediation, you may want to do it, but it's not appropriate. And we'll counsel you otherwise because we don't know values. We don't know the extent of property and it's to your detriment. But, um, I, I do think whether it's formal or informal, it is something that should be explored in every single case that it's contested. Preparation for mediation is important too, whether it is informal or formal. Um, I always prepare my clients for mediation just as I would prepare them for trial. And we'll go through everything and talk about the, um, you know, kind of where the line in the sand should be drawn and so forth, because it can be challenging when you're in there. Um, um, you know, the fear of, of giving away too much or not yielding enough. Absolutely. And kind of branching off of that, what what are some tips in you know interacting with the, the mediator? Because they they're not necessarily on your side or the opposing they're not on either side. They're just looking to kind of help bridge the gap and whatnot. Um Yeah, I I think know who your mediator is. If you're gonna do something formally, 
Okay. It's like a guardian ad litem. Know who your guardian is. Uh, find out the information about them um, to the extent that you can. I think when you practice this long enough, uh, it seems whether you're you know, in California, whether you're in New York, the family law bar is small, typically, uh, regardless if it's a major city. But the point being is you pretty much know everyone who does this. And the mediators that are widely used, everyone knows. And so you pretty much know their history, their position, what they're likely to do. And I think if you know your mediator uh, and then know what you have to do to present and in your case, I think that's going to be to your advantage. But I think on, at the onset is what's instrumental is not just walking in, and, and as Tammy suggested, it's walking in prepared both with what is uh, your max offer and your minimum offer. What are you willing to settle for and what aren't you willing to settle for and knowing uh, your limitations uh, and being prepared to say yes and no. I think that's kind of what I think in order to deal with the mediator. Now, if you're doing it informally, it's the same process. You're just negotiating with the other side. And I do think sometimes just informal to me uh, simplifies the process uh, because I think most of the time in family law, the parties are ingrained or entrenched, I should say, in their position, and a mediator is not going to change their mind. But perhaps just taking that third party out and, and posing their own attorney can convince them that it's in the right you know, best interest of their case or their kids to resolve. But I think is if you do have a formal mediator, it's knowing their expectations, knowing yours, and knowing a little bit about them. Yeah, with a formal mediator, it, like Scott said, it's, it's vital to know what their, um, their history is, what's important to them, um, and how they've sort of come out in past mediations. Um, if you have a, a mediator who has a certain set of values and you know that, that those values are going to conflict with what your ultimate goal is, going into mediation is probably going to hurt your case more than it helps it because the other side is just going to become more entrenched in their position that they're right about whatever issue that may be. So I think that's probably the biggest thing to know um, about your mediator is, you know, what, what are their positions on those key issues? And oftentimes we can have a say in who the mediator is. And that's very important to, to exercise that, um, that ability if it is an option. And I will select my mediators based on, um, you know, the parties, the issues in the case. Um, I don't want a mediator who doesn't have any background or experience in dealing with uh, complex assets or business issues, um, mediating a case where those issues exist. And, um, you know, and when there are custody issues too, like Will had said, I mean, knowing, you know, values and, and beliefs of that mediator and what they've done in the past, um, that can be important too when it comes to the custody issues. And sometimes it's just personality. Sometimes I know even some of my favorite mediators are not the best choice for certain cases because, um, they won't do what needs to be done for the particular case and will alienate one party or the other. And um, so we'll select them based on that as well. I mean, I think overall, uh, when you're thinking about that mediator, uh, whether you know a lot about them or not, but it is about preparation, coming fully prepared. That is various parenting plans, various child support calculations, various property distributions, whatever that may be, be prepared because you can influence the mediator alone. It's like your judge. If you're in a settlement conference or status conference and you come prepared with either case law 
whatever it is. And it's going to require some advanced preparation. You just don't want to go in there with what do you want? Uh, you need something to back it up and why. Again, it all starts with the position of in family law, the other side's not going to settle unless they believe they're going to lose something if they go to trial. Why would they? And so it is about preparing with that, you know, for that mediator to convince them that you are right so that they can take that information and convince the other side that, that they're likely to lose at trial. Absolutely. And with that preparation, um, a lot, uh, I know the, the impact of the various states and their various laws that go into it. How, how important is that when preparing for your mediation, uh, understanding those case laws and the individual uh, laws going on in the state? Extremely important. Uh, and it's important that um, the client has a good understanding of what it is, uh, that, that the attorney and sometimes we have to educate the opposing counsel um, and sometimes the mediator on that law. Uh, and goes back to, you know, some of the mediator selections. Um, you know, if there's an opposing counsel who is not well-versed in family law and maybe there is an unrealistic demand on their part for uh, maintenance, also known as alimony or spousal support, I might want a mediator who I know is going to say, this is not a maintenance case. Let's, you know, move on from that issue and, uh, you know, get to the true issues of the case. Yeah, in terms of I mean, when you know the law, you can also instruct your client against perhaps unreasonable positions, uh, whether or not, I mean, that's part of understanding what is possible at trial and what is not, and saying, look, you can ask for it. Mediator's not going to go for it because they understand the law, uh, and the other side certainly is going to. So uh, it's part of what we do at Cordell & Cordell with our uh, litigation practice system is providing clients not only here's their goals, but what does the law say? What are the possibilities? What's the outcome possibilities? Uh, and, and providing an avenue and path to get there if possible. And so understanding that before you get to mediation uh, can benefit you, the client, uh, so that you can make an appropriate request uh, in terms of formulating your strategy. Yeah, and I think it's, it's also important to know not only what the law can and can't provide for you, but also what the law can and can't provide for the other side. And so when you get into a mediation situation where maybe the other side is asking for something that they know that they can't get at trial, maybe you can then use that to your advantage to ask for something that you might not be able to get at trial, but through mediation and using that sort of you know collaborative law type process, you can maybe get something that would have been more important to you that you necessarily couldn't have gotten at trial by giving up something that may be less important to you. Absolutely. And in terms of giving things up and getting things, how can you guys as attorneys uh, advise your clients from a good deal to a bad deal? You know, how, how do you identify what's the most beneficial for all the parties involved? I think first it starts with identifying what the client's goals are. And once we know what the client's goals are, we can then evaluate them from, okay, are these expectations realistic? Is it realistic that this would be the outcome if we were to go to court? Um, and just because it wouldn't be an outcome at court doesn't mean it isn't something that we try to negotiate in mediation. And it does provide the opportunity then for, um, you know, for us and the client to have that ability to do so and present that. And 
it all really comes from preparation, knowing what the goals are and educating the client on realistic outcomes. And then, you know, in, in really evaluating the assets that are there, um, the the goal with a custody arrangement versus work schedule, family support, uh, where the parties will be living, schools, et cetera. And, um, and then just making sure the client's aware of all of that going in and that we've done our homework in advance too. Absolutely. Yep, totally agree. Yeah, I think um, I usually start the analysis off with what are your goals, what can we get at trial, and what's it going to cost us to get there? Because especially when you're talking about financial goals, um, that's a key part that often gets overlooked is what is it going to cost us to get there? If the other side is going to be completely unreasonable and drag the process out, then that should factor into you know, what, you're, uh, what you're willing to do through mediation so that you can maybe save some money in the long run and yeah, it is about principle. Uh, you know, some some clients are principled, and they said, "Look, I want the forks and knives, the spoons." And I've had this conversation, but we can run down to Target and spend thirty four ninety nine, or we can argue about it for four thousand dollars. And I'm okay either one. Uh, just so you know, uh, I get the better end of the deal if that's where we're going. So, <laughs> but I'm okay. I mean, I think that's what clients have to. You have to have a really honest conversation and say, "Look, I'm on your side. Whatever it is you want." If the law allows us to argue for it, I am going to argue for it. But that is about is about preparation, and but also understanding completely, as Will suggested, what is it going to cost? And clients, it's, it's your decision. And if it is a principled one, then so be it. We will make a principled argument regardless of the cost and ignore that. But you, it is about making sure the clients understand going in. Here's the expectation. And one of the most difficult things in family law is to tell clients anything with reasonable certainty. And that is you can't really tell them how much it's going to cost uh, in terms of fees or perhaps what they're absolutely going to get with certainty. We can tell what the law is and what the likelihood of the courts you know, or the mediator moving in that direction. But we can say, okay, here's a value, whether it be a, you know, uh, an IRA worth $5,000. We know that if we're going to have to go to trial, we're going to spend perhaps more than that. And so the question becomes, is it, what's the trade-off? Is that more important uh, going into mediation than spending it. And for many clients, it is, at least the ones that I've represented, I'd say more than not, are principled. And they say, look, this is about principled. Yeah, I want it. And I understand it's going to cost me more to get it, but that's okay. Uh, there are little victories. You know, I, I oftentimes say there's no winners in family law. It's degrees of losing. And, and by that, I mean, everyone walks away with less than what they started. You can have small victories, I think it's easier to say victory than wins because win just implies that you're going to get everything you want. But small victories, whether it be custody, support, property, but understanding what it's going to cost you. And I think that's so key. And it's part of the preparation. It's part of the learning process that we do with the seminars that we give at night. These podcasts are intended to be uh, educational, informational, and preparational so that you understand what you're doing before you get into it. Yeah, and, and sort of the caveat and the flip side to that coin is also understanding what's it going to cost the other side. Um, you know, that should go into your analysis too. It shouldn't all be on your side because a lot of times I've had opposing counsels try and use that to me and say, well, it's going to cost your guy X amount of dollars to, to get that. And say, well, it's going to cost her the same thing. And so, you know, you have to understand that when you get into sort of the negotiation, the mediation 
point of it to say, okay, well, yeah, there's going to be some costs. There's also going to be some costs on the other side. And, you know, how much is it worth? And the important question that the client always has to be mindful of uh, when deciding whether to agree to something in mediation, be it formal or informal, is, is this something that I can live with long term? And because, you know, once things are signed, um, there's little that can be changed and limited circumstances where that can happen. And so just really just, you know, focusing on the on the long term goals and what will make you happy. Absolutely. And speaking of signed, how important is it in these negotiations to get so much of it in writing? Oh, at the mediation session? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I it's like even if you're in court. So uh, mediation informally, when I say that, it can happen at the beginning of the case. It can happen in the middle of the case. It can happen at the end of the case. You know, I'm not a big fan of uh, trial date settlement talks. Uh, but in the same respect, anytime you're going to have a, a conversation about settlement, it better end up in writing. Uh, in many states across the country, that document isn't even enforceable until it's approved by the court. And there are some in which it is enforceable. So you have to be mindful of the laws that relates to enforceability as well. Meaning when you walk out of that room, you have that sigh of relief thinking you've resolved the case, only to find out later that your state doesn't allow or doesn't uh, provide for enforceability of written, even if it's in your mind a contract, until the court approves it, meaning that, for example, in Missouri, uh, anyone can back out of any document or any agreement because the sky turned gray. And the court will say, okay, now there may be some ramifications down the road, but uh, for the most part, the court's going to say, no, there's no agreement until I've you know, waved my magic wand over it. So whatever happens, you need to get it done, get it written, you know, and get it to the court. Uh, unless it's a binding situation where before going in, everyone agrees that whatever is produced out of that mediation session is binding. And there are some states like that where, uh, and I know Georgia, I think, was one of those where it's mandatory arbitration and whatever is entered in there has a you know force of law, like an administrative law judge, I think it was, when I practiced there. But that's just instrumental. Oral agreements to me, uh, your attorney's not doing you any good. It's a complete disservice if you don't get something at least in writing and then move forward very quickly to get it resolved and submitted to the court. But just be mindful of what your law, your state's laws provide in terms of enforceability and getting that resolved into a final uh, decree of divorce. And make sure you fully understand what is in writing too. Mm -hmm. If you are not sure and you don't want to ask in front of everybody that's sitting at the table, Ask your attorney if you can step out in the hallway or something and and talk about it to make sure that you fully understand what it is you're agreeing to and discuss any possible ramifications for it, any possible benefits of it, and so forth. Yeah, it is the most stressful moment, not only just going through divorce, but then having to make a decision on the fly. You know, being faced with something that wraps up perhaps 30 years of marriage and dividing all of your assets and your custody and, and money and having to sign your name to that and agreeing to it and not, you know, being in the perhaps great state of mind to understand. And that's one of the reasons some states allow you to back out is because emotional, you didn't fully understand. But I think is there aren't enough questions to be asked of your counsel when you're going through that. If you're going to put it in writing, make sure you read every single word and that everything is covered for uh, in that document and understanding what the next step is uh, and making sure that in, in Attorneys owe a duty of service to understand or to explain to your client 
that perhaps isn't enforceable when we walk out of here? Can they back out? And just being mindful of that. Uh, maybe be creative about uh, penalty provisions in an agreement and, you know, if either party backs out of this deal, maybe there is, a, you know, attorney's fees provide for that so that there is something. Just be thinking uh, globally if you're going to try to get that resolved. But there are just a lot of risks in settlement conversations. That's why I'm not a big fan of doing trial day settlement because you waste too much time and attorney's fees trying to talk settlement when you could just present it to the court and know you have finality. But uh, uh, in my mind, an oral agreement is no agreement. It has to be in writing no matter what. It's 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 anything in our business is confirming conversations in writing. Uh, you know, an or a telephone conversation without something confirming it is nothing. Uh, that's why we, we keep notes to the file, uh, you know, with our client portals so the clients understand, hey, we just had a conversation. The attorney's going to put it in there so you know we're confirming what we just discussed. So there's no misunderstanding. You know, there is things that are lost in translation when you have that oral conversation. People hear things differently. Uh, especially when you're stressed, you don't hear every word. You know, when you get news of a bad medical report, I guarantee you, if you were to interview that patient, they would hear about every 15th word and they don't understand. And so it's the same thing with divorce. Uh, put it in writing, period. Yeah. And that goes back to the preparation. I mean, if you're going to put something in writing, you need to know well beforehand what you're willing to agree to. And so that you don't get in sort of that emotional state, like Scott said, and you end up agreeing to something that you didn't want to agree to, and now you're forced with that, okay, can I back out? How do I back out? What are the penalties if I do back out? Um, having that preparation beforehand, knowing, okay, this is what I'm willing to agree to, this is what I don't want to agree to no matter what, then when you do put something in writing, you can feel confident that, okay, I agree with this, I understand what I'm agreeing to, and I'm not going to be the one that's backing out and potentially getting the court upset with me. And with formal mediation, in some jurisdictions, parties participate without their attorneys and other jurisdictions, attorneys are present. If you are participating without your attorney, when you have that meeting before mediation uh, to prepare for mediation, make sure you ask your attorney, how can I reach you during mediation if I have any questions during this process. And I always make sure my attorneys have, or my clients have my cell phone number and that I have my calendar blocked so that I am available to them if anything comes up during that mediation session. So in terms of mediation, what are some misconceptions regarding the process? I think for my clients, the ones that come right in and say, well, I'd like to get this, mediate this, you know, they all think it's going to, one, it's going to be, wor- it's going to work. It's going to resolve their case. And two, it's going to save them money. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the answer to both of those is probably it's a complete misconception most of the time. Uh, not every mediation works and not every mediation saves you money. Uh, because there's, I, in my experience over almost 25 years, a very few have been resolved in mediation. And you know what is mediation? Mediation is an intervention to, con- to an attempt to resolve a dispute. It's an attempt. And so many clients will go uh, through this process has having spent thousands of dollars. Uh, they may go hire one mediator without counsel and spend thousands and walk away with nothing. And so just understand how much it's going to cost to mediate. That's why I'm a big fan of informal mediation because it may save you money in, in discovery because we acquire information that we otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, but understanding that not everything resol- is, is, you know, is going to be resolved here, and it is an attempt. Uh, but I do think 
doing it early on before I always suggest either right after you file your petition or before just getting the parties together uh, is certainly a step in the right direction. So maybe perhaps the misconceptions are that they've heard that mediation is a way to save money. But I don't think that's 100% true. It does work for some. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I think, in at least in my experience, it's the extreme minority that it saves money for people. I think uh, one misconception I see a lot is the binding or not binding nature of mediation. Um, I always tell my clients, especially, I mean, here in Missouri, mediation is not binding. Um, so, you know, before they go in, I do remind them, you know, don't agree to anything that you're not 100% on. Um, because in my opinion, and, and I think the courts look at it this way too, for the most part, it does look bad if you agree to something and then you back out of it later on. It, it doesn't look good, but um, it's not binding. And so when the other side agrees to something and they have this huge you know, sigh of relief, okay, great, we're done. And then two weeks later, when the settlement documents are finally getting drafted, they say, oh, you know, by the way, we want to make this change. And, and the client's confused. They don't understand why... I thought we had an agreement. And so when you, if your jurisdiction doesn't have that sort of binding nature to mediation, like I believe most do not have, um, that's something that I think is a, a common misconception and is a big pitfall when people think they have an agreement and then the other side may back out. Yeah, many times it's, gosh, the language is always going to be the hang-up for many. When you get to that settlement agreement, the marital settlement agreement, divide your assets and orders each party to do something, It's there's always something in there. And it's a surprise because they, they do. They walk away thinking, ah, we're done. Uh, but that language, you know, whether it be legal custody language or, you know, the payment of college expenses or what happens and now pops up another argument. And so, again, it's it is, it's got to start on day one with your, your counsel advising you of what to expect and having reasonable expectations going in and coming out of it. Uh, because it does produce perhaps even more questions than answers after you've left that session. Um, again, perhaps why uh, I'm more of a fan of just something informal, because I, I don't, I'll ex- describe it to my clients as informal mediation, but it is more of just settlement discussions. And I don't want them to get hung up on the word mediate, because it does imply that you're going to get resolution. And that is the misconception. I just think that in family law, mediation, let me tell you, I used to mediate uh, employment defense stuff, and it worked. Um, it was just different. It doesn't seem to work as much, as frequently, as often, whatever, in family law. Uh, because you corporations want to mediate and resolve, individuals get entrenched, and they don't understand the process. They don't understand, perhaps, things that are being divided into words and language, and they, they are principled. Corporations aren't necessarily principled, and, and they just want, they're principled about resolution. Uh, individuals are principled about topics and things. So uh, just be careful, ask questions, and perhaps just don't get hung up on the word mediation because it just has uh, implications that uh, aren't necessarily appropriate when you're talking about uh, family law. Yeah, and it could be, I mean, using sort of that juxtaposition between corporations and individuals, you know, corporations are looking at their bottom line. It's very much a cost-benefit analysis. How much is it going to cost me to resolve this through court versus through this mediation process? When you're talking about custody of a child, when you're talking about, you know, paying maintenance or alimony or, or child support, um, 
those things, especially child custody, don't really have a bottom line number. You know, everybody would say their children are invaluable to them. Um, so it's very difficult to say, okay, well, you know, if, if I can agree to this, then I can certainly afford that. Well, yeah, maybe when it comes to some of those, you know, property division issues or things like that, those might be a little easier through mediation and maybe you can piecemeal. But to get resolution on custody issues, unless both sides are really coming in with open minds and, and have sort of that good relationship that maybe sometimes you do have at the beginning of the case, like Tammy said, um, maybe it would be more effective at the beginning of the case once you've gone through sort of the ringer of the litigation process and then you just try and decide, okay, let's go through mediation, it's going to be really difficult to get people to move off their positions at that point. Absolutely. Um, and especially in deciding uh, custody, you kind of really need all of the cards on the table. But when it comes to a lot of stuff involving assets, how impactful is the hiding that can be found out during this process? I mean, it, it's got to be it, – it's a huge deal if one party was hiding assets and whatnot. Yeah, quick way to, to end the mediation is for them to find out that you're not being forthcoming with all of your assets. <laughs> I mean, that's why I said mediation can last five minutes or five hours. Yeah. Uh, or unreasonable positions uh, perhaps will walk you right out that door. Yeah. I mean, no harm, no foul in, uh, in, in some respects, but – Look, if we had the, the, the solution to hiding assets, we would be the only law firm in the country and we'd have millions of clients. But <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I tell my clients that then I do this at seminars and is that it is a rarity uh, where a client comes to me and we can't formulate a position and put them, the clients in a position to be, give them the best chance of success at finding and getting that asset, whatever it may be. It's not worth it. I've never had a client successfully come back and say, hey, well, you know what? Good thing I hid that asset because I've still got it. And, you know, it just never happens that way. Because <laughs> uh, it just, it doesn't. It always ends badly. And I know that your friend's friend's friend, whose brother's friend got divorced, told you to hide an asset. It, nothing good can come of it. So, you know, it is. It's, uh, I haven't had very many in the mediation where it's just be upfront, give everything you got. Uh, and let's focus our efforts and energy on something better that we can achieve rather than trying to keep something hidden. Because once I become aware of it, I have to get out of the case. I can't be, you know, something that perpetrates the fraud. And so uh, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a quick way to tank your entire case because uh, I'm gonna, if I'm opposing counsel and I realize you're trying to hide something, uh, I'm going to try to use it at court. And judges are derailed by emotion. And if they don't like you, I don't care what the law says, you're going to lose and you're going to lose badly. And good luck on appeal. Uh, some states won't even let you appeal it. And, and even then, only 5% of appeals are successful anyway, uh, especially if the court finds you to lack credibility and all issues. So, uh, you know, moral of the story is uh, treat your lawyer like you would treat your doctor, and that is give them all the information that you can uh, before you go into the mediation so that we can deal with your symptoms and try to heal you. Absolutely. Yeah, and, I mean, hiding assets... It, it's it's a bad idea all around. I mean, even let's say you somehow hide an asset during your divorce case, and then a couple months later, a couple years later, somehow the other side finds out about it. You're bragging about it to a friend of a friend who's a mutual friend or whatever. 
the other side can still come back and have another suit to get their interest in that asset. So, you know, unless you're planning on hiding it for the rest of your life, which still isn't <laughs> a great idea because what are you going to do with it? But it, it's never a good idea to hide anything, especially from your attorney, um, but also from the court. I mean, it doesn't, it never ends well. Absolutely. Um, it, in terms of mediation, do you, do you guys have any um, final thoughts that you m- want the listeners to know? Explore it, no doubt. Uh, ask your, I mean, it's the thing. Go to your attorney. You may be in the middle of your divorce. You may be just consulting about a divorce. But, you know, say, like, what are my opportunities? You know, mm-hmm. Without having to go to, through this entire lengthy, stressful, expensive divorce process. Mm-hmm. Can we get to an informal you know, round table. Uh, it's like getting hung up on the words, uh, I want custody. Getting hung up on the word, whether your jurisdiction says sole custody, physical custody, don't get hung up on it. Let's talk about the time. And so likewise, don't get hung up on the word mediation. Let's figure out how do we get to a resolution that uh, makes it happy for everyone. And just find out more. Uh, ask your attorney a lot of questions. What can we do to get the other side to the table to talk and if we need to get a third party you know, inter- to intervene uh, to try to get us to a different position, then let's do it. But again, like we've talked about, it's understanding the process, understanding the cost, understanding the risks. You know, it is a cost-benefit analysis. And then determining what, you know, what do you want? Is it a principal position or is it a logical financial decision? Okay. And so, and I think it also, you know, the other tip is we've discussed is be prepared. You can't prepare enough for a settlement discussion, whether it be informal, formal, or in court. And that is having multiple positions ready, knowing what the, you know, your likelihood trial scenario is, knowing what you actually can be successful at achieving at trial, uh, what we call your best and your worst case and likely scenario. Understanding all of those. And then lastly, go into mediation or whatever it is, willing to give because you're not going to get everything you want. Understand that. If you go in thinking, I'm going to get everything I ask for, then your mediation will be a waste of time because the other side is not going to move. They have to be convinced to give up something that they otherwise would not get at trial. And they have to have a reason for it. And so you've got to be willing to give on something. And so you have to prioritize your goals, whether it be, okay, I'll give 55% of my pension, but you know, I want another three days of custody whatever it is, or I want some discount on my maintenance alimony. Know that. You have to be willing to find something and just have a list of areas that you're willing to give on, you know, that's only shared with you and your attorney. And then as that presents itself, you can perhaps make another offer. But if that list is blank, Hmm. be ready for a five-minute mediation. Yeah, I I think, you know, I was going to touch on that as well. I've had mediation where we've gone into the office, sat down, other side comes and says, look, we have to agree on this first, and then we can talk about everything else. I mean, they knew we weren't going to agree on that before we walked in the door. So it was like, well, this was a big waste. We'll see you later. And we just left because there was no point to continue that mediation session. We all knew that that was not going to be successful. Um, You know, I guess as far as other things, one thing that I'd you know, tell my clients about, you know, like you said, looking for offsets is the time value of money. You know, if it's a, a maintenance or uh, alimony situation, maybe you can buy that person out and maybe you can get out for a little less now than you could over the long haul. 
Um, also, me, uh, mediation is not the time for mudslinging. It's, it's supposed to be this sort of collaborative law type effort where, um, you know, both sides are going to come to the table and, you know, everybody's going to work with one another. And that's, you know, the sort of pie in the sky idea about it. But like Scott said very early on, you don't want to show all of your cards in mediation. And so if you have, you know, maybe there's some things about the other side that aren't the greatest in the world, you don't want to show all that at mediation because, for one, you're giving away information that you may need to use at trial later on and you don't necessarily want the other side to use. But also, if you want that other side to be engaged in the process and willing to work with you on the things that you want uh, in exchange for maybe some things that they want that aren't as important for you, slinging mud is just going to throw that right out the window. So, you know, go in with an idea of what you want um, be focused on that rather than the emotion of the divorce process, which nobody's going to fault you for having those emotions, but keeping them in control, being prepared um, will help you be much more successful if mediation is the right option for you. And one important thing to remember is we cannot make the other side settle. We cannot make the other side to agree to things in mediation. So, you know, the, the most productive mediation sessions, formal or informal, are those points where Scott and uh, Will both stress that everybody has to be in a position to give something. And um, but when it's not successful, you know, sometimes then it's OK. We gained the information that we needed. We know what their positions are. We know what we need to do to prepare for trial. And, you know, sometimes it's just time to move forward then. Last thing I think I was thinking about was be mindful of not settling everything, meaning that don't weaken your position by thinking you're, you have taken a few things off the table. Meaning that, say, for example, you settled property, uh, but now you've left custody to be tried by the court. Uh, what I'm suggesting is opposing counsel will try to get you to resolve piecemeal, perhaps, because it weakens your position. Your negotiating authority, uh, and that is, if you were to go to trial, they may actually wind up in a much worse position uh, had they had all those issues at trial. So I'm just saying, I'm a big fan of global settlement rather than piecemeal, uh, because I don't like to just try one thing, because it is, for at least representing guys, is you need everything possible to get you in a position of good negotiating strength, and if you take something off the table and leaves just the very one thing that you absolutely want you're probably in a much weaker position had you just tried everything. So be mindful of that. If you can resolve it all, resolve it all. I'm just not a big fan of piecemeal unless you and your attorney uh, conclude absolutely that that is a, an issue that you would not be successful at at trial, leaving some other items on the table, then piecemeal it. But don't just be uh, in a hurry to resolve matters uh, just for the sake of resolving matters, because in the short or in the short run, it may save you money. In the long run, it may cost you. Exactly. We only want you to piecemeal if it's something that's strengthening your position and giving you something that uh, we don't think we'd otherwise be able to get. Yeah, and I, I guess one one more thing, uh, something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily look at as far as a benefit from mediation. If you can resolve your case amicably, and especially in, in a custody situation or a co-parenting situation, that's going to help you immensely going forward 
like I said before, you don't want to sling mud. And if you can avoid it and still get what you're looking for, um, that's going to help you a hundredfold going forward to be able to continue to communicate with that co-parent in sort of a, a, a rational and not in the you know emotional way that we see when a lot of nasty divorces conclude and now nobody wants to talk to one another. If you can do it through mediation, a lot of times that will help you out. Um, but you also need to make sure that you're not giving away the farm just to be able to continue co-parenting, especially if you're just going to limit your time substantially in order to get to that place. And that's all the time we have for today. Make sure to check out all of the articles, news, videos, and podcasts at mensdivorce.com. Make sure to check out the Men's Divorce Facebook page and Twitter at Men's Divorce News, as well as check out the Men's Divorce Source app now at the App Store. Thank you so much to Scott, Tammy, and Will for stopping by. We really, really appreciate it. On behalf of all of them, I'm Dan Pierce, online editor of mensdivorce.com. I thank you all for listening and have a great day, everyone. <laughs>